0: In the days of the Russian Revolution, the Soviet state tried to stamp out Christianity and convert everyone to atheism. A popular Russian comedian developed a stage act in which he played a drunken Orthodox priest. Dressed in wine-stained robes, he did a, a comic imitation of the ancient but beautiful liturgy. Part of his performance was to chant the Beatitudes, but he used distorted words such as, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for vodka. And blessed are the cheesemakers, while struggling to remain more or less upright. He had done this act time and time again and been rewarded by the authorities for his work in promoting promoting atheism and in making worship seem ridiculous. But on one occasion, things didn't go as planned. Instead of saying his garbled version of the Beatitudes in his well-rehearsed comic manner, he chanted the sentences as they are actually sung in a real liturgy. His attention was focused not on the audience but on the life-giving words that were coming from the Bible. Words he had learned and sung as a child. He listened to the memorized words and something happened in the depths of his soul. After singing the final beatitude, he fell to his knees weeping. He had to be led from the stage and never again parodied worship. Worship. And that is the wonder of God's word, is it not? Here is a grown adult, right? He learned the scriptures as a holy child, thought he had outgrown them as an adult, only to be humbled by the reminder that they are indeed God's holy words. This morning, this is week two of this great apologetic series. We're in defending the faith and its rational answers to a reasonable faith. Rational answers to a reasonable faith, based on a couple of New Testament verses we're using kind of to undergird it. Uh, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, writing, says this, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And in verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so Judas is saying that the word of God is, excuse me, he is saying that the word of God where our faith is rooted is something that we need to contend for. He said, Jude says, the word has always been under attack and that Jesus Christ has always been denied. This is not a 21st century phenomenon. This has been going on for some time. And then Peter weighs in and gives us his encouragement. Here's his verse. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And here, in keeping with the idea of contending with the faith, Peter says we need to defend our faith, the faith that produces hope, the faith that can give us hope. We'll see today there's a hope in God's Word, and we need to defend our faith and in the process defend our hope. That's the premise of this whole series we said last week. The premise of the series is to know what you believe and why you have hope and to be able to to, uh, communicate your belief and your hope to those around you to communicate that belief and hope. And I think that really is the end game of this entire series. It has to be the hope that our faith can produce. So in about nine weeks as we head into Christmas season, hopefully you'll be more aware of the hope that you have in Christ because of the faith that you hold to. And you can hopefully share that hope with other people. And we live in a world today filled with so much social unrest, right? Political unrest, economic. unrest economic unrest, all of this is going on. In a world of despair, we need to be the people of hope today to tell people there is indeed a hope. Now we said this is an apologetic series, apologetics, as we said last week, it is reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or a religious doctrine. And if that's a little hard to get your hands on or your head around, here's a simpler way to look at it, the reason why we believe what we believe and why we have the hope that we do. That would be what Peter would tell us, that would be a biblical view of what apologetics are when we look at the scriptures and the reality is as we'll see in the next two months going through this series there is more than enough evidence for the faith that we have and the hope that it produces we should be the most hopeful people on the planet now last week i said we talked about god the evidence for god a reasonable god today we're going to look at his word god's word and we're going to look at a dependable word and why this word is so incredibly dependable and if you know anyone that that kind of questions the validity of the bible and eh, as the bible this would be a message just pass it on to them just so you gotta you gotta listen to this message because i think it will be incredibly powerful in showing us how dependable god 's word is, and let me just say I think this is an incredibly timely series because today I, I kind of see where, where i 'm at, and I look and I see people on two sides of me. I see people over here who are are kind of like falling into this progressive christian Christian trap, and they 're kind of like like woke right and and people that I thought really understood the scriptures and held to the Bible, and now they 're like they're just getting so off course in what they believe and and they take biblical belief and they look at it through a political lens and they have totally abandoned what scripture says. And it's kind of shocking to me sometimes to see this. At the same time, there are people over here that are kind of like, they're like, Well, they think there's this spiritual awakening going on in the world. And and they look at the Bible kind of through the lens of there's like the spiritual enlightenment coming. Like there's this kind of new age divine wisdom and knowledge that's coming over the whole world. And both of those are missing the reality of God's word and what it teaches. And so it's not this kind of woke progressive thing and it's not this new age spiritual awakening uh, which kind of bypasses the cross and everything the cross represents. So I think it's a timely, very timely series for us in that way. One of the issues, this is what I think happens on both sides of the aisle here. Here's what happens. It's the notion that God is love has been twisted into this. Love is God. Let me just say that's a problem. Love is not God. God is love, but love is not God. See, here's the reality. When God is love, yes, God is love, God is also justice. Like, see, see, both people in these camps, like, their great desire is, is like, we desire love. Well, yeah, we do desire love, certainly. You know what else we equally desire? Justice. I think of people all the time that kind of have an issue with hell, and they, they, they like we said last week, one of the arguments against God is like, well, hell, like, like loving god wouldn't send anyone to hell let me just tell you the issue like with hell is not necessarily hell because everybody desires love but they desire justice we all it's it's in burden of us we want justice and so it's not just hell it's maybe kind of how hell is applied but the reality is god is a god of love and a god of justice so love is not god but god is indeed love and when you twist those around the bible becomes distorted and true justice is lost so so today in this series we want to bring we want to find the truth and the stability that is found in god's word here's today's big idea today's big idea we can we can trust god's word it is an expression of god's love just know that we can trust god's word because it is an expression of god's love and we will see that repeatedly this morning And so some may doubt the scriptures and some may not feel it is loving enough. The exact opposite is true. This was written by our Heavenly Father. And just like you as a parent will say things to your children sometimes that are hard to hear, you tell them the truth and you protect them and you're honest with them and that's exactly what God is in his word. Sometimes some of it might not sound loving, but you know what? It is God protecting us and loving us and giving us the truth. And so what we're gonna do today is look at this from two angles and we're actually gonna first pr- use the Bible to prove the Bible. We're gonna use the Bible to prove the Bible and you might think, how do you do that? Well, here's how it doesn't work. Look at this verse again. 2 Timothy three seventeen. all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, I can't just simply say, see, the Bible See the Bible right there says all Scripture is breathed out by God. I just proved it to you. Well, you can't do that. That's not how you use the Bible to prove the Bible because you, you can't do that with the Koran or with the, uh, with the Book of Mormon. Like, what if that was in the Book of Mormon, you know? All of the Koran is breathed out by God, so it's true. No, that's, that's not how it works. But we will today see several pieces of evidence where we can use the Bible to actually prove the Bible. So first, the theological evidence for the Bible, first side of the coin, six reasons why we can trust the word of God. Here's the first one. There's the archaeological evidence. There's the archaeological evidence for the word of God. You'd be surprised how, many, how often archaeology comes in and speaks to those modern academia and skeptics and proves the Bible to be true. Did you know that until the early 19, uh, 1990s, a lot of modern skeptics and academia didn't believe that King David was a real person. Like yeah, the King David that wrote the Psalms wasn't real. And then in 1993, uh, they discovered the Tel Dan Stele in an archaeological dig. The stone slab with inscriptions dating back to the 9th century BC about 100 years after David ruled, put together by a pagan king, it talked about he talked about when he defeated Israel. of the, uh, the one of the kings of Israel who was of the house of David. So he, he refers to the house of David, one of the maybe first pieces of really extra biblical evidence that proved King David was real. And there were about a dozen other kings on this slab that got verified in the process. This happens more than you would believe. I could give you countless examples today of how this is true. Two weeks ago, we talked about, remember Sennacherib, uh, the king of Assyria came in and t- attacked King Hezekiah, right? And w- was, was taking down the cities of Judah. And so what did hezekiah did to protect jerusalem but he diverted the water supply from the springs into the city into the city thank you for flipping that head for me and and here's the here's the verse that says in psalms 46 4 this was the psalm written about that very incident there is a river whose streams make glad the city of god the holy habitation of the most high and you know what archaeology has come along to discover it was back in let me find the date here it was back in uh, 1867, explorer Charles Warren verified through archaeology that that's exactly what Hezekiah did. They found evidence of that. It happens time and again where the archaeological finds give credence to the scripture. So that's the first uh, piece of evidence. Here's the second piece and it's closely related. It's the historical evidence. There is the historical evidence. I often talk about the Bible being the autobiography of Jesus Christ. It is but it's also a history book. With the personal testimony and the eyewitnesses of those who experienced those things, those who walked with God and give their personal testimony. The truth is, the Bible is not just one book. It is actually 66 books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter, and Paul, giving you their personal experiences. So the Bible then, the Bible then is, uh, is, a, is the personal testimony of its authors, the personal testimony of its authors and, and the thing is we have different authors that verify each other I, I, I wondered one time and I just kind of got an answer this week and never thought about this before like why does the Bible have first and second Kings and then it has first and second Chronicles and they tell the same stories I'm like God you only have 66 books in your Bible why did you take these two books and these two books and they're kind of like the same stories well now I know why do you know why Do you know why? It's real simple. Here's the uh, little secret. Jeremiah wrote the book of Kings. Ezra wrote the book of Chronicles and they verify each other. Like there's just no discrepancies between them. They historically agree. Now like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel writers, they may give their own personal perspective, their own personality shines through their writing. But the, 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 the historical facts and the message conveyed is exactly the same. And just like with archaeology, history repeatedly, repro- repeatedly proves the Bible to be true. There are even secular historians like Josephus. He's, he's, he's not even known to be a believer or a Christian. He's just a secular historian of that day who gives us lots of valuable information about that era of time. Josephus, Josephus' works provide us with valuable details that do not survive in any other records. In fact, he provides the most important extra-biblical information on many key political figures, such as Herod the Great, Felix, and Pilate. Here is one of his quotes that he shares on Jesus. Here's what, here's what a, a secular writer said about Jesus in his writings. Uh, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew, he drew over to him many, both of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them again. Appeared to them alive again the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day so the Bible gives us a verifiable and accurate historical account and people like Josephus not even known to be a believer that sure sounds like a believer to me but it's not known that he ever really became a Christian but that is his testimony, and it's pretty, pretty amazing. Here's what's really fascinating, is that history always ends up aligning with the Scriptures. There, there's always those times when skeptics and academia, you know, comes along and they find something and they think, they have this aha moment. Aha! We cut the Bible in an inaccuracy. It's wrong. See, See, it's wrong. And then basically, with a little deeper study and a little greater context, Eventually, invariably, the Bible is found once again to be absolutely true. History and archaeology repeatedly prove the Bible to be 100% true. There's never been anything that they've found that has really discounted the Scriptures. And if there's something lingering out there, it'll just take a little more research before they will find out that it also aligns with Scripture. Never doubt the Bible when it it seems to be at odds with history or archaeology or even science. We won't get into science much today, but even that, it all agrees with the Bible. We can trust God's Word. It is an expression of God's love. It simply is. And God, in His love for us, gave us a reliable, accurate account of of all of history. And it's really important. Here's our third piece of evidence there's archaeological, historical, and then there's the critical evidence. The critical evidence, and I kind of put my own like, names on these to make them memorable, but this refers to what's called textual criticism. Something called textual criticism. What is textual criticism? It is used to verify the writings of antiquity, to verify the writings of Plato or Shakespeare, all, all of these different writers of antiquity. And it looks at three things, the number of manuscripts, the date of authorship, and the accuracy of the words. And so how does the Bible stack up when it comes to this issue of textual criticism? Here's what you have to understand, like in the Bible here, right? We have the Bible here. Just understand, like, there's the book of Romans in here, right? There's the book, of, uh, Paul wrote the book of Romans, and Moses wrote the book of Genesis. But we do not have the original manuscripts. They either are old and deteriorated, deteriorated or got destroyed. We don't have the original manuscripts, but we have copies And we can look at those copies that have been passed down and see how accurate are they. Dr. Norman Geisler from the Southern Evangelical Seminary, here's a couple of quotes from him this morning. He says the Bible is the most accurately transmitted book from the ancient world. No other ancient book has as many as early or more accurately copied manuscripts. In fact, he says that minor variants consist mostly of slips of the pen or spelling. The thing is, no other book of antiquity comes close to the Bible. It is the most accurately transmitted book from the ancient world. That's the Bible. And that is modern science. That's textual criticism, a tool they use on all kinds of books, saying it is accurate. You know, one of the reasons it's so accurate, did you know the meticulous and and diligent detail the Jewish people went through when, when managing and handling the manuscripts? When it came to copying a manuscript, they would count up, not just the words, they'd count up the letters on a page. They'd know how many letters were on a page. They would know the center word in that page because of all the spacing. And then they would copy it. It had to be identical. They would count, they would cop, they would count the original. They'd count their copy. Had to have the same exact number of letters, and the middle word had to be the same. And then a third person would verify it. And then after that, if they found a mistake, you know what they did? They threw the whole manuscript out and started over because they they didn't want to potentially have an erroneous uh, copy get copied in the future. That's exactly, that's how diligent they were. Here's what Dr. Geisler says. The Greek scholar A.T. Robertson estimated that New Testament textual concerns have to do with only a thousandth part of the entire text, placing the accuracy of the New Testament text at 99.9%, the best known for any book from the ancient world. Bottom line, the Bible is the most accurate book ever written. Like Shakespeare and Plato, they're maybe like 90%, correct? 99.9% accurate. And the only issues are really Just kind of like human error. That's about it. A misspelling, a a slip of the pen, flipping two words around. A new monk arrives at the monastery. He is assigned to help the other monks in copying the old text by hand. He notices, however, that they are copying copies and not the original books. So the new monk goes to him and says, hey, if you copy all these copies, what if if there's a mistake in the copy? You'll just copy the mistake. And the monk said, well, the head monk said, yeah, you're right you know, I should go down and check the original manuscripts. And he goes down into the basement and digs out the original manuscripts and he's gone for a long time. And no one sees him. And finally, the, this young monk that, uh, that confronted him goes down into the cellar and opens the door and he's down there, he's just sobbing and he's sobbing and he's sobbing. He's like, what's wrong, what's wrong? He says, we missed the R, we missed the R. It was celebrate, not celibate. So... So, you want to make sure that you get the copies exactly right. We just need to know that we don't have the original manuscripts, but we have thousands of copies. We have thousands because, see, it's better than just the fact, you know, we we look at the accuracy, and that's great that they're so accurate, but here's what's really amazing is that we have thousands of these manuscripts. Here's Dr. Geisler again. The reliability of the New Testament is established because the number, date, and accuracy of the manuscripts enable reconstruction of the original text with more precision than any other ancient text. The number of New Testament manuscripts is overwhelmingly almost 5,700 and Greek manuscripts compared with a typical book from antiquity, about seven to 10 manuscripts. Homer's Liliad has the most at 643 manuscripts. The Bible blows that out of the water. The New Testament is simply the best textually supported book from the ancient world. That's just amazing. And the, the Old Testament, they put the Old Testament at, at well over 10,000 manuscripts to verify the, and what they do is they compare these manuscripts and they can see. They, they can find out, you know, we got 9,000 manuscripts here that 95,000 that are, you know, whatever that are all accurate and then there's 9,500 and there's, this one has a little error here because it's a misspelling and they can compare them. That is really powerful. So that means that the mistakes are, again, are just minor spelling mistakes, slips of the pen, or possibly a couple of words. And I thought to myself, like, goodness, I do that every week up here. Last Sunday, I'm talking. My mom mentioned this to me a while back, but I I told something, a quote from from, um, Einstein, right? I talked about Einstein. And then about 10 minutes later in the message, I talked about Einstein. Called him Einstein about four times. I'm like, how embarrassing is that? It's Einstein, I know. And then I was talking in the message, I talked about how sometimes we are putting our life into someone else's hands. I talked about that. And you know, I watched this. I'm putting the video together. I'm watching this and going back through it. And I realized later on, I said, yeah, we're putting our hands into someone else's life. You probably didn't even catch it. How creepy is that, man? (laughs) Putting your hands into someone else's life. Woo! But that's the 0.1% of human error, even in the Bible. Humans wrote it. There's going to be human error. But we can tell because it's got so many manuscripts. It is exactly what God gave to the original authors. Uh, here we go. Second Peter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is talking about the great transfiguration of Christ, and here's the reality about the scriptures. They are a first-hand account, not a second or third-hand account. This is a first-hand account. The people that wrote the Bible, they lived it, they experienced it. Paul walked those missionary journeys. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John walked with Jesus. Paul had those revelations from heaven. They're first-hand accounts, not second- or third-hand accounts. They are accounts, again, we can trust God's Word. It is an expression of God's love. This is God's love that was passed on down to us. God was so careful so that we would get the truth, that we would know how much He loved us. So, Why is this so important that they're first-hand accounts? Why is that so important? Because here's the deal. There are certain books today, they call them the lost gospels or the Gnostic gospels, like the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Mary or the gospel of, uh, of um, Peter. There's just different gospels that were written. And sometimes people criticize. They're like, well, those were left out of the Bible. Those should be in the Bible and they were left out. And what do you say to that? Well, here's the problem. Here's why they were not included in the Bible. There's a couple things. One thing is they were written two to three hundred years after Christ, after Jesus walked the earth. They're not first-hand accounts. They're second and third-hand accounts. And, and so they're, they're just not the same as the other writings. Did, did you know the Gospel of Mary was not written by Mary? The Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel, of, they didn't write them but they deceptively try to put it out as if they did write them. And so that's why they were not included in the Bible. The other reason they're not included in the Bible is simply this, the lost or Gnostic Gospels are called, contradict the Bible. They contradict the Bible. That's the simple truth. To put it plainly, if the Gnostic Gospel was included in the Bible, then the Bible would be in error and no longer reliable. The Bible would cease being the Bible. You see, the Gnostic gospel speaks to what I talked about earlier. It's kind of that New Age philosophy where it downplays the cross and it looks at salvation through divine wisdom, knowledge, and enlightenment. Those books, yeah, that's not part of God's word. And what's amazing is really by about 300 A.D., even before that, but by 300 A.D., they pretty much had a consensus. This is the Bible. These are the books of the Bible. These are the the, the divinely inspired books passed down to us. They even knew about that time. The Jews and Protestants agreed about that time that the Apocrypha that the Catholics were so in love with was not a part of the Bible. They had a clear understanding of what was the Scripture. And you know what other, uh, the other thing that's amazing, I read this week, there's like, like the, the, the church fathers of that day, like the, the, the church pastors and leaders of that day, they have like, a, they can find like a million quotes by them that verify exactly what they considered Scripture to be. And so we know the books of Scripture because they're verified in this sense. You know, one of the surprising driving forces, though, behind what put your Bible together? You know, one of the things that's so amazing about how this was put together? Back in the day, like, if you contained the Scriptures, like, you could be in, like, serious trouble for persecution. And so there was this question that came up, which books of the Bible are worth dying for? Am I I willing to die for the book of Enoch and the Apocrypha? Well, no, I'm not. Am I willing to die for this lost God? No, I'm not. Am I willing to die for Ephesians or for Romans or for Psalms or for Genesis? Yeah, I'll die for those books because they are the divinely inspired word of God. These are the books that became the canon of Scripture. These are the books that tell us we can trust God's word. It It is an expression of God's love. And so one of the biggest and most powerful evidences of the Bible is that it passes this critical test. Here's the next one. This is actually number four. I got my counting off there. This is, there is the prophetical evidence, and I'm not going to talk about this this morning because I don't have time. We're going to deal with this when we talk about Jesus. Let me just tell you this in a real simple sense. There are hundreds of prophecies written hundreds of years in advance, and they all came true, and they prove the Bible is actually the Word of God. It's a powerful, powerful thing. We'll get to that later. Uh, number five, there is the synthetical evidence. What is synthetical? I came up with this word myself because I wanted to you get these memorable, you know, historical, you know, archaeological, synthetical. What is synthetical? Think about this definition, combining separate elements to form a coherent whole. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible is the, the, one of the most amazing things about the Bible. Just think about it. The Bible is composed of, by, is a book by forty different authors writing sixty-six books over fifteen hundred years, containing one consistent meta-narrative. That's what's so mind-blowing. Like, you've all played the game uh, telephone, right? You get about 20 people in a circle and you start something here and you pass it around and by the end, you whisper it and everybody's here. By the end, it's like it makes no sense at all. How did 40 different authors writing 66 books over 1,500 years continue to tell one consistent story? Well, Paul tells us how. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I can't just quote this verse and say, see, it proves the Bible is breathed out by God, inspired by God. But I can, when I give you the information I just gave you, use the Bible to prove the Bible. And just again, what is this meta-narrative? It's that the Bible expresses God's love. The Bible expresses how much God loves us The Bible is simply a book like none other. Nothing is more accurate, more proven, and more dependable. And that takes us to the last argument. And it's an argument we used when we talked about God last week. It's this one. There is the experiential evidence. There is the experiential evidence. And again, we don't don't put our experience above the scriptures or anything that's contrary to the scriptures. But the bottom line is, God is a personal God. And the people that wrote the Bible had a personal experience with God. They walked with God. They experienced God on a personal level. The Bible is not just a theological book. It is a practical book. This is a book, we're we're called to live this book out. Like live this truth out in your life. And here's the reality. If you put this book into practice, you will build stronger relationships, know deeper contentment, experience greater joy, find a safer refuge, and discover your truest worth. If you just live that book out, that's the practical reality. Psalms 1830 says this, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. The word of the Lord proves true. Has the word of the Lord proved true in your life? As you embrace it and live it out, does it prove true that yes? That yes, I'm happier when I'm living out God's word. It simply is. And you just look at those that were willing to suffer and willing to die for the scriptures and you say, why is that? Because they had a personal experience with the author, the God who wrote the word. They simply did. I thought this was a fascinating little story here. Look at this. When COVID-19 hurts, the Bible brings hope. In times of trial and trouble, many Americans turn to the Bible for encouragement and with good reason, according to a new study. In the middle of a global pandemic, a contentious election, and social unrest, the American Bible Society, with assistance from Harvard's University Human Flourishing Program, found a strong correlation between Scripture reading and hope. Frequent Bible readers rated themselves 33 33 points more hopeful than irregular Scripture readers did in two surveys of more than 1,000 people done six months apart. The study also found that people are more hopeful when they read Scripture more frequently. On a scale of 1 to 100, with 100 being the most hopeful, Americans who report reading the Bible three or four times per year scored 42. People who read the Bible monthly scored 59. Those who read it weekly scored 66, and those who read it multiple times per week scored 75. Weed, that's from Harvard University. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is the theological evidence for God's word. This is why you can trust God's word. And that experiential part, when you come to know Christ and you begin to experience his work in your life, that's really, really powerful. Now let me go on here and uh, let's jump to the other side real briefly. The practical realities of the Bible what the Bible means to us. For instance, Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Did you know that the Bible, nothing can read me like God's word can? Like we know there are people that can read us or we can read people sometimes. Nothing can read me like the Bible can. I read it and it's reading me. That's so amazing. That's so odd. And, and I know I talked a lot the last couple of years about that narrative. We're created in God's image and we are like a triune being of, of body, soul, and spirit. And this passage here says that the Bible divides between our soul and our spirit. Like, like my spirit is where I'm regenerated and, 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 and I'm reborn and come alive to God. My soul is where I make that decision. And, and the spirit kind of divides between those two things. Like, it actually speaks to my very salvation. The word of God can lead to my salvation. A person can stumble into a hotel and be... At their their wits end, full of despair, maybe suicidal, they can they can go in there. They can pull t- pull a Bible out of out of a drawer, a Gideon Bible, and read it and find Christ. Why? Because this book is the Word of God. The Spirit of God penetrates that book, can penetrate our heart. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. That means. This book then can open us up, lay us bare, and lead us to Christ. And even after we're saved, we need to read this book with an open and expectant heart because this word, this book will change us. This book will teach us. Do you read the Bible with a teachable spirit? I thought about that this week. I thought, I'm so glad I do because I believe things today. I know things today. I didn't know 25 years ago when I started ministry because I have had a teachable spirit, and God has opened the scriptures to me in so many deep and profound ways. So many deep and profound ways. We can trust God's word. It is is an expression of God's love when God looks inside of us and tells us the truth and, 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 and penetrates our heart and our soul and our spirit. It's a good thing. Here's a second practical reality. Nothing can satisfy me like God's word. There is nothing else that I think, I think this is something else we can lose sight of. How much God's word can satisfy us. Like we can look at reading the Bible like it's a duty or an obligation. And I get it, it's a spiritual discipline. We need to be disciplined in reading the Bible. But we need to be careful that the discipline of reading the Bible doesn't take away the delight of reading the Bible. The the truth is, the word should be more than an obligation or duty. It should be a privilege and a joy. Like I have the privilege, I, I, I consider it a privilege that I get to study every week and I get to preach. I get to, wow, wow, this is just an amazing, what a joy. The prophet Jeremiah in scripture was known as the weeping prophet. Being a prophet, he had the duty to declare God's word, did he not? That was his duty. The thing is, the word that he declared from God was not always warmly received. He was alienated from family and friends and rejected by his community. In Jeremiah fifteen ten, he says this, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. Like he wasn't very popular because he proclaimed and and did his duty of proclaiming the word. In fact, later on in in Jeremiah, he curses the day that he was born. You would think somebody like that would be, not think too fondly of the scriptures, right? Like you think somebody like that would be like, "Eh, I don't really care for the Bible. It It gets me a lot of heat. God's word gets me a lot of heat. Here's what he says, six verses later, same chapter. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Like, yes, proclaiming the word was Jeremiah's duty, but it was also his delight. Let's, let's, not, let's not lose that. Let's not lose that at all. Peter weighs in for us. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. We just need to, we just need to desire God's word and feed on it. I grew up, I said this before, in East Rochester, Ohio. 2020 census put the population at 285 people. I don't know if it was bigger than or smaller than. I don't know. I remember I had a paper route with 50 to 70 people, and I would go around, and, and I would deliver the paper, and I always, always stop at my grandma's little general store or a quick stop store, and she'd always give me, you know, candy and a pop. And, and I remember one day I'm there, and I must have been running, kind of dragging my feet, and it's 6 o'clock, and mom calls up the store, calls up uh, her mom, and says, have you seen Billy? I was Billy back in the day. Have you seen Billy? And she's she oh, always right here having a ho-ho and drinking a pop. Mom wasn't very happy. It was six o'clock. Dinner's on the table. You know, you don't fill up with junk food before dinner. You just don't do that, right? And, and the fact is, good, healthy food will build strong muscles and help us grow healthy bones. And uh, yeah, and that applies spiritually as well. Like spiritually we need to feast on God's word. It's good for our spiritual health. It is. Think about Job for a moment. We talked about Jeremiah and Job's story is kind of similar. I ended last week talking about Job, right? Job is the icon of suffering in the Old Testament. Not just facing suffering but enduring suffering. Here's Job's testimony. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Like wow. Wow. Like in the middle of his greatest adversity, he knew there was a satisfaction in founding God's word. It could sustain him through his hard times. So note then that the word carried Job and Jeremiah through great tribulation. It will carry you through great tribulation as well. You just need to know that. Here's what's amazing about Job. You know when Job lived? Job lived somewhere between Noah and the great flood and Abraham and the great call. Like somewhere, like around 2200 uh, B.C., 2200 BC that's when he lived consider what job did not have when he when he marveled at God's Word he did not have the poetry and passion of the Psalms the wisdom of the Proverbs the richness of Ephesians the spiritual fortitude of Romans the simple teachings of Jesus what did he mean when he talked about how God's Word was you know like he treasured it what what would that well it could just simply be the verbal communication that God gave to him I don't know what it means he didn't have any of the, the Bible that we have today But God's word was satisfying to him. And I wonder, is God's word satisfying and sustaining you every single day? It needs to. Here's a third. Here here is a third practical reality. Nothing can validate me like God's word. That's what's so powerful about the word of God. Nothing can validate you Last week I ended the message, right, talking about you know, the evidence for God, the evidence against unbelief and against atheism and, and agnosticism and how those, they can't answer the deepest questions of life. Like, who am I? What's my identity? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Why do I matter? What's my significance? Can't answer any of those. The Bible can. The Bible will answer all of those. Just know the Bible will answer all of those questions for us. And it will give us a deeper confidence. Society often tells us that you are not enough or tells us that you are enough, you are worthy, you are loved, you are strong. And all of that is incomplete and missing context without the scriptures. The scriptures give us the true context about that within our own life. Here's how Jesus said it. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This word will give you the truth about your life. Jesus will tell you the truth. God will tell you the truth. The Spirit will tell you the truth. He will validate who you are. You just need to know that. You just need to know that. The Bible gives me, think about this, the truth about who I am within the context of my life. So the Bible tells me I am actually not enough apart from Christ. That's the truth. And that's why you feel so empty when you don't know Christ as your Savior. The Bible also tells me I am unworthy apart from Christ. Yes, I'm valuable because Christ made me, but I am unworthy apart from Christ. And that's why people spend their lives trying to find validation and worth in anything and everyone, every, in anything and everything and anyone. They're looking, for, they're looking for what only Christ can give them. You'll find it in the Word, the validation of who you are in Christ. And again, I'm only strong in Christ. Apart from Christ, I'm a mess. But in Christ, I have this inner strength. And yes, I am loved. God loves me, and he tells me the truth. He tells me how I can live in and live out his word every single day, how I can live in and live out his love every single day. We can trust the word because it is an expression of God's love, of how much God loves us. You can trust it just in that sense alone. Practical reality number four. Look at this verse. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, approved, or equipped for every good work. And just know this, that nothing can transform us like God's Word. Nothing can transform us. The Bible not only saves us, it feeds us, it grows us, it makes us think and act and look more like Christ. Wouldn't that be great if, if there were just more people in the world that looked and thought and acted like Christ? Well, the Bible will do that for you. And you can bring that hope to the world. If you allow it to, God's word will change you in incredible ways. In fact, Romans 12:2, "Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind," that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How many don't want to know the will of God for their life? Right? Everybody always wants to know, what's God's will for my life? I'll give it to you real straight right here, right? The word of God is the will of God. Like the word of God is the will of God. And if you spend time right here and use this to renew your mind, you will by extension worry less and walk in God's will all the more. It's, it's really that simple. It's really that Simple. God's word will transform us if we take the time to dwell on it and let it saturate our soul and renew our minds. Renew our minds. We can trust God's word, it is an expression of God's deep love for us. And just know it's God's will that you know his love and it's God's will that you share his love. Finally, this morning, Romans fifteen four for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. He says this over in Psalm 130. I, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Right? and So just know this, that nothing can encourage me like God's word. Nothing can encourage me like God's word can. And this is why we we must defend our faith because our faith produces our hope. You want hope in life? You need to know your faith. You need to defend your faith because then you're defending your hope. That's Peter's message to us. And if you have hope, then you can give hope to the people that are around you, the people that are in despair all around you. Before I give you one last closing illustration, what did we learn today? Well, the theological evidence, right, is archaeological, historical and critical those three pieces of evidence right there remember those and then prophetical synthetical and experiential and I wonder which of those just really spoke to you this most this morning and said that was really fascinating that really gives my faith a lot more encouragement and hope and then we looked at the second side of the coin um, oh I didn't put it on the screen the second side Uh, of the coin there nothing can read us like god's word nothing can satisfy us like god's word nothing can um, validate us like god's word transform us like god's word nothing can encourage us like god's word and i asked this last week i put this up last week i'll put it up again if you get people that challenge your faith, you get into a debate about your faith and people are like, you, you know, you're going back and forth with them and they're kind of challenging things. This is the question you can always pull out and ask them and it might just end the debate. It might just end the debate again, right? If, if I or anyone else could prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was real and that his word was true, would you believe? And again, there are going to be people who would say, well, actually, No. Because it's really not a belief issue for them. It's not a proof issue. It's really, it's just a, it's a me issue. I want to be the Lord of my life. Because the minute that you say this is true, right? What happens the minute you say this is true? It's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm accountable for this. I have to. And so people oftentimes will just say, well, no, actually I wouldn't. I'm not interested in buying into that. Let me leave you with one last thing. There are those parts of the Bible that we may look at and find the least exciting. For instance, the genealogies in the scripture, right, can be some of the hardest parts of the Bible to read and not just because the names are so hard to, ex- to, to pronounce. It's just that they're hard. It's like, like there's a whole chapter and it just goes on and on and on with these names. You can hardly say them and so why is it in the Bible? Yet the truth is, even the genealogies contain some gem. Case in point, in Genesis 5 and Um, God gives us this genealogy from Adam to Noah. And it really is interesting. And I want to look for just a brief moment at each of the people in this genealogy and their name. Just going to run through their names. There's 10 names here. Shout out to Mike Winger, the Bible thinker. He taught me this. Uh, just so fascinating. The genealogy gem in Genesis 5, okay? Here it is. And here's the first name, Adam. And his name means man. So he just, Adam means man. Pretty straightforward. Seth means appointed. That's because he replaced um, Abel. He was appointed to replace Abel. Uh, Actually, that's in the scripture. It says that about his name. Uh, Enosh means mortal, incurable, woe, sickness, wickedness. That's the name Enosh. Um, The name Kenan means sorrow, like a dirge or a funeral song or a lament. These are all interesting. Just, it's interesting what the names sometimes mean in Scripture. It's kind of fascinating. Mahael, um, if I said that right, the blessed God. Like, uh, let's, that, that, that is not a dirge, a funeral song, or a lament. That, that's the blessed God. That last line shouldn't be there. Oftentimes in Scripture, I didn't know this either, that when you have E-L at the end of a name, it is referring to God. Like, Daniel is God my judge. Michael is who is like God. Nathaniel is the gift of God. Okay, Nathan, you're the gift of God. But anyway, that's the blessed God. The next name is Jared shall come down. Again, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't get that last line below that I taken out. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching, dedicated, discipling. Um, Methuselah means his death shall bring. Kind of fascinating. Lamech means despairing or lament. Noah means rest and comfort. Okay, what does all that mean, right? It's like, okay, that's interesting. Those names all have interesting meanings. Did anybody see it in there? Anybody see it in there? Let me just read it to you. Man, I put it on the screen. Man is appointed once to die then the judgment. He is mortal, incurably wicked and sick. In sorrow will they play his funeral song, but the blessed God shall come down teaching, discipling. His death shall bring a despairing lament that will, be, that will result in our rest and our comfort. Genesis 5, the first 10 genealogy, first 10 names of the Bible tell us what? The meta narrative that is conveyed throughout all of scripture. Doesn't that blow you away? Isn't that just amazing? It, that's how dependable this word is. The genealogy of Genesis 5 tells us the meta narrative running throughout the entire Bible. That is just so 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 incredible. We can trust God's word. It is an expression of God's love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that we can trust it, that we can depend on it, that it gives us hope, that it fills us with hope. May we just have all the more confidence when we read it. May we let it saturate our soul and renew our mind so that we look and think and act more like you. Lord, just may we not look at our Bible reading as a duty. May we see it as a desire. May we not look at it as an obligation, but may may we see it as a privilege and a joy that we can open up the scriptures and we can let them flood into our soul and give us incredible hope. Help us this week, wherever we go, if we have the opportunity to, 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 to just give a smile of hope to somebody else, to shine some light into their life, to let them know, of the hope that we have. Open up those doors for us. Make us aware of those opportunities. Give us the confidence to speak up and represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.